welcome to the second season of We Are All Africans. A safe space for Africans with a wide range of backgrounds to discuss their being in a globalized world. I'm Saren Coley. Please take a seat and listen. What's your name? And what does it mean? My name is Maneor Filo Mohale. I'm really interested in, in names and naming. I have been thinking about names very deeply and I think I've been playing around with names more recently in my practice, in my poetic practice. But in the most simplest sort of way, Maneo means, it's a Sasoto name and Maneo means mother of gifts. Uh, Rifilo, which is my middle name, means we have been given. And Mohali, as my surname, takes on multiple meanings. But the one that I think I resonate most with is sharp or bold. Sharp isn't like the sharpness of the knife. Who named you and why did they name you this way? Do you know the story behind your name? My grandmothers gave me both of my names. My paternal grandmother, Nkhulma Mahali, gave me my first name. I'm named after her grandmother, so she would call me grandmother sometimes. My maternal grandmother gave me my middle name. And I'm not really sure why. I think it probably is because it has a relationship with my first name that I was given my second name. But I haven't asked many questions about my second name. I should. You said that it's a Sesotho name. What is Sesotho? Sesotho is my home language. It's one of 11 official languages here in South Africa. It's native, I suppose, soil is in the kingdom of Lesotho, which is a landlocked country, which is located in South Africa. So, yeah. Were you born in South Africa? And if you were born in South Africa, how was your upbringing? Those are great questions, goodness. I was born and bred and buttered in Johannesburg in South Africa. I was born in the East Rand of the country, so the eastern part of the city in Johannesburg, and in Benoni, which is, uh, it's difficult to describe the East Rand in relation to the city, I suppose, because Johannesburg is a, a city in which gold is a central part of its history, the reason for its existence. Gold was discovered here in the 1800s, the late 1800s. So The east part of the city is also deeply known for mining. And that also is an image and a thing that shows up a lot in my writing. But I'm from that that side. I'm from the east of the city. My parents were born and raised also in Johannesburg in a township called Gatlehong. And they met and fell in love there. And Gatlehong has a very prominent place in South African history, especially in the struggle against apartheid as being a site of intense militant struggle. So that also was colored by the East Rand is shaped by that history. That I also come in <laughs> at a strange time. Like I'm born in 92, which is two years just before democracy, before the first free and fair multiracial elections in 94. So I was born in 92, which is this intensely violent period and very scary period in South African history. But I was born to this like emergently, like just about to be middle class black family. And we had moved already at that point to the suburbs, which were predominantly before like white suburbs. So 
my sister and I kind of move into the space and kind of are raised in between two worlds. They're sort of suburban, increasingly diverse, as you would say, increasingly racialized, but uh, stubbornly white suburbs still. And then between the worlds that my parents grew up in, which is like closer to the eastern end of the city. So I grew up kind of like moving between these two worlds. And I still feel like I'm in a bridge in many ways, like of a tense space, like a tense spot, because it's I don't know, I feel located between histories. I feel located between very, very, very tense class struggles, especially since South Africa is one of the most, if not the most unequal country in the world. So my family's story is very much colored by that upward mobility that only uh, an embarrassingly small amount of Black families were afforded and could access when still in this country, and this is not necessarily unique to South Africa, but I think that South Africa has very unique features or a unique flavor on this, but one of the most unequal and stubbornly persistent racial and class inequalities because of the, the very recent history that we tell ourselves that we've escaped from, but we haven't really escaped from at all. So how does that feel to know that it's not a reality and to be told a different reality as you grow up. How do you become a South African? So much of being a young South African in my generation, I think. But also I can't speak broadly because there are so many South Africans. It's almost impossible to speak broadly. Identity becomes a category that falls apart very quickly. I think that when I look around at my communities and my ecosystems, which are very much colored by class and race, but also specifically of like gender and sexuality as a trans and a queer African, they, these are my people, these are my family, it's like around me, colored by my community and the people around me. I think that we were told like we are called so-called born freeze. And I think that in 2015, we really saw, at least in this country, the the mass critical consciousness of a youth that was told and promised this beautiful future in which the doors of education are open to all, in which the lives of Black South Africans should have been and must and were promised to be much better than under the last dispensation. But here we have a generation that is coming of age that is facing, and in 2015, but the Fees Must Fall movement and the Rose Must Fall movement, here we have a generation that is told that education is promised to you and yet you are being financially excluded at almost any and all of the educational institutions and universities and technicons in this country and rising youth unemployment and all of these huge structural, historically heavy issues. That's when the myth, I think, was broken publicly, like at least in my young sort of political life, as like a touch point of saying, this is what it looks like when the Rainbow Nation falls apart and we realize that it's a myth. So it's weird to be part of this generation and to confront that lie and then also to be met with a far more existential threat, a global threat, one that exposes border imperialism for what it is and nationalism and jingoism for what it is, but that here we have this like human, this threat to human life, to life as we know it, to nature of which we are part. 
it's really strange to be young <laughs> and working and autistic and African at this time when we're met with multiple apocalypses, but also as someone who wants to read and connect to histories that are not commonly spotlighted in the archive, you begin to realize the more that you read even African history, that the world has been ending for corners of this continent for many, many years. So it's, it's interesting to be part of this moment and painful and full of loss and grief to be part of this moment and to be witness to this moment as a very young, I would still consider myself at 30 years old, a very young African artist. How can you describe your community and how or why is it your community? So yes, yeah, my community, and this is also something that I learned I for my university education. I was lucky enough to travel to Vancouver, Canada, Coast Salish lands. I attended the University of British Columbia and a very large part of my political and I would say like artistic education was learn, was being in close community with all kinds of people <laughs> as what happens in university. But I think for me, I... I arrived on the backs of the Idle No More movement of Indigenous and First Nations people on Turtle Island. So it was just like this like boof, boof, boof moment and this moment of deep connection and the beginnings of learning about what solidarity might look like between Indigenous people and Black people and Africans. So like I learned there that community is who claims you back. It's not just who you claim, it's also the people who claim you back. So in, in Johannesburg, a lot of the people who claim me back are uh, Black, queer and trans people and also deeply like diverse, super multiracial, multigender. A community of chosen family, of people who hold me and, and who I hope I hold back, people whose work inspires me very deeply, who I feel like we're inside of this really beautiful feedback loop of reading each other's work or engaging with each other's work and learning how to be fluent in each other's work in all kinds of realms. So it's, yeah, those are my people. <laughs> you said a community of Black, queer, trans, and also multicultural. So what does it mean for you to be Black, trans, and queer? This is such a like great question. <laughs> and also something that it's also difficult, is like an unfolding and breathing question, right? Because so much of the rhetoric against queer people, especially queer African people, is that we're un-African, that queerness or the transness is imported from the global north. But I think that at least in my thinking ahead a little bit, or like I've moved away from that question, which I feel isn't particularly generative or exciting or juicy, <laughs> at least for me, it's like it feels like, oh, okay. But also to understand and to acknowledge the ways in which language and knowledge still follows deeply colonial imperial roots. They travel the same way. They use the paths that have been carved by ships and guns and machetes over centuries. So ideas move back or along the same paths. So I, I think I, as a writer who writes in English <laughs> and who publishes in English and who has engaged and is proximal to very sort of, of legacies of whiteness and empire, it's like so hard and a tough place to be in to kind of say, there are ways of being and loving and existing that are so old, that exist before, before language. <laughs> And it's not to 
then engage in the sort of like just the repatriation of like identities from the past as if they are like perfect and idealized just in their pre-colonial romance, I suppose. I think I'm just increasingly adding myself and my voice to a chorus of people that are trying to imagine new ways of being while being in deep conversation with the past. So what it means for me to be Black and queer and trans or non-binary or all of these names that make me legible, I suppose, in a Western framework of like gender and sexuality. But increasingly, the longer that I'm here and the deeper I ask myself further and more ancestral questions about identity and sexuality and desire and kinship, the more those categories dissolve. But I cannot ignore the political reality of needing to, to be visible and legible to my own community and to people that are looking for not, I don't want to fall into sort of role model or like ideal or like that kind of thing. But I know that there were poets and artists and queer people and trans people that made me feel possible because they identified themselves and lived in public ways and published, obviously, pursuant to all kinds of like issues of safety and openness and visibility and representation. But I really want to be the kind of person that makes other people feel possible, that make other divine, beautiful, complicated, gorgeous, queer, young, black babies feel like they have and can and must carve their own space and take up their own space in the world, on the continent, in the country, everywhere. That's beautiful. You talked about safety. So how is it really like to identify the way you identify yourself and for your community and your people to live in South Africa? Safety has definitely been very front of mind, especially of late with the global rise, but in the most visible sort of spaces, we're seeing this deep commitment and proliferation of fascist, homophobic, transphobic, anti-Black, anti-immigrant rhetoric and political movement. So I, any answer that I give of what it's like to be queer, trans and Black in South Africa is, is deeply impacted by and coloured by my class in which I have access to safety, but it's also relative safety as a like upper middle class Black South African. It's like, it's so stark to see the ways in which I and people who move like me can es not escape, but avoid and be precluded by. But also what we're seeing and what we know is that those are always temporary and mitigated and asterisked <laughs> conditions of safety. But overwhelmingly, and also increasingly since the pandemic, which has widened and worsened and made more cancerous um, some of the issues at the root of a lot of the violence that we see against trans and queer people in this country. So it's it's very difficult to exist <laughs> in such tension while also understanding that there are ways to move and imperatives also in responsibilities of movement and speaking in a position like this.
what does it mean for you to be African? That's a beautiful question and a very hard question. Right now, it feels like, like a dimension of my queerness in the sense that the definition of queerness that I rest on most often is from Jose Esteban Munoz, who describes queerness as a not yet here-ness, as a futurity. And it feels the Africanness that I feel most connected to right now is like infused with that. It's a thing that in one dimension, it's multi, I hate the word multifaceted, but maybe as a poet, I can use the word multi-mirrored that in one mirror, we have an unknowable past like that is as real and as tangible as the land, which speaks, which has memory and which has wounds, which remembers its wounds and tries to communicate to us. And its wounds are, are borderless. And we know that. And that is a, a part of Africanness that is deep, that resonates very deeply with me, especially in how I think about and write through trauma and thinking that it's not just an event, that it's a, a happening, a physicality, a tangibility sometimes that resides inside of the body that in itself has memory, that the land has memory. And I'm connected to the land. Both of us have memory, how capable of remembering. And then in this sort of like exciting, generative, optimistic, I suppose, that is also given to me by my queerness. This idea that we are not yet here, we are harbingers of the future, we're citizens of the future that do not belong to any nation except the nation of imagination, which sounds like a flowery thing to say, but is a deeply radical and political thing to say, at least how I believe in it, how it lives in my life and my work and in my will that I represent and so many trans and queer Africans represent a future in which we already exist. And the future that I want is a future in which all of us are safe and that we can live and that we connect and we can love and be loved. I think being African to me is being a part of the land that remembers and that I hurt and that I want in both directions and that I grieve and that I yearn <laughs> in both directions. So when did you realize that you were African? Wow. <laughs> I guess identity is a series of realizations. Like identity is a series of wakings. But the first time I realized I was African in like a, in a terrible way, in like the deeply restrictive and incredibly anti-Black way, was um, when I moved to Canada. I was involved in a student group called the Africa Awareness Initiative, I was a VP external at some point. It was amazing. It was the club university life. But it was the first, a large part and a large mission statement of the club was to lobby the university to establish an African studies major. They only had African studies as a minor subject, whereas other subjects had major programs that were more aligned with the Eurocentric sort of view of history and culture and understanding and philosophy and ac the academy, you know. So <laughs> I think inside of that advocacy, I, I learned a lot of things <laughs> that, you know, what, what other people, but where people that are located and proximal to and like ingest a very specific worldview that is involved and informed by the imperial and the Eurocentric, view Africa as a very specific, weird, 
distorted lens. And it was almost amusing for me because I'm like, I have no idea what it is that you've been told about. (laughs) And who told you? (laughs) That's messed up. So I think that was the first time that I encountered and collided with that vision. And it was so perplexing because it didn't look any or sound anything like me or the people that I knew. But in terms of like the first time I discovered or realized, I think I'm still realizing. I think I'm still inside of the process. I think I'm still being sucked in by the land and seduced by the land to say, these are all the ways that we've been. and These are all the ways you could be. Look, <laughs> remember. So I, I'm still realizing I'm earning it. I'm trying to earn it. <laughs> As Africans around the world, we often hear something about South Africans not really feeling Africans. How do you feel about that? Or what do you think about it? I get it. I absolutely get it. And also I see it around me in the sense that it shouldn't be surprising, at least when you are looking at the flow of and how capital has shaped how we relate to one another right now and how we've been relating to one another since independence. And I think there's this sort of deeply warped economical and historical and political locuses of power have set us up in ways, and also our government has adopted this sort of like deeply, they've drunk the Kool-Aid around this like exceptionalism, the South African exceptionalism that, oh, like, you know, we're the promised land because of our constitution and Mandela and all of the stuff and et cetera. But also the deep political sort of realities that we're starting to see now even more since the wake of the pandemic, that as we receive and absolutely we do not receive, but as migration moves further and further south, as we have family that comes down, 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 and then meets the sort of border imperialism at the South African border, that's when we see and have started to see the sort of ossifying of increasingly xenophobic, Afrophobic policies. And that reflects in a way that you can't deny (laughs) because it makes it so shockingly brutally political and tangible about who we consider to be African and what we consider ourselves to be. It's funny because being and taught South African history, we're taught and we're warned about Africana nationalism and its dangers and its consequences and its malignancies. You see that nationalism is as nationalism does, no matter where it happens. So yeah, I feel you. Like it's a joke sometimes that ha- like just comes up in a common conversation, but it's like not funny. What are the languages that you know, understand or speak? And what is your relationship to this? My mother tongue is Sosoto. My father's family, uh, they come from Mohalasuk, I think on the eastern side of Lesotho, of Maser in Lesotho. I don't speak Sosoto as fluently as I would like to, as a consequence of like a deeply assimilationist British education, but it's also something that I know that is also just like this ever-expanding breathing thing. My mother's family, Kiba Zulu, so they speak Zulu. 
And then I was raised, I suppose, inside of an educational system in which we first, we had to select a first additional language and mine was Afrikaans. So I can write and read and speak Afrikaans, though I don't very often. It's interesting, like I, my language exam in Canada, I had to translate a secondary source in Afrikaans, which was wild, <laughs> but also really wonderful. But yes, that's also something that I can do. It's so, language is so wild. I was trying to, I was talking to my partner the other day about a question that I got at another sort of podcast sort of thing. And I was asked, what do you write in English? And I was joking with one of my very good friends and loves, Romeo Oriogon, who's a Nigerian poet. And about how whenever that question comes up, like these two wolves jump out inside of it at the, the like, the, <laughs> the heart of an African writer. You have Chinua Achebe on this side and then you have Tiongo <laughs> on another side yelling at each other, but also not yelling, <laughs> but having a very incredibly generative, but like, ah, oh, very sore debate about is English an African language and the absolute chasm, the silence in the archive in our indigenous languages and the incredible grief that so many of us feel to be exiled from our own tongues and to feel the weight of empire in that way in our mouths that intimately. It's sometimes a, such a hard question to speak about because there's, I experience an incredible amount of shame, but it's also something I'm asking myself to kind of look at and unseat and locate where, where and why and why. And also play. I think poetry has given me a really beautiful space where I can play in the liminal very tense, very stressful, rock and a hard place between a rock and a hard place that a lot of us find ourselves writing from. You said that you're a poet and an artist. We know that the African continent is divided by languages that we don't necessarily understand. How do you have access to other African authors, poetries, writings? How do you navigate those spaces? How do you feel about that? And also, how do you know about these authors on the other side of creativity? I was raised with a really, really, really strong sort of love of books and of reading. And I think that that's the way in which I was sort of exposed to the porosity, I suppose, of borders, because my father read very widely. So I, I read Nkrumah and I read Wolosuinka and I read Achebe. And, but I also was reading and was very, very, very curious about what was happening around me. So I was reading Don Matera, Nadine Gordema, Alan Payton from a very sort of like school syllabus. And it was only much later that I was exposed to other writers. But then as a poet, I started to, and I think I'm starting to understand myself and locate myself inside of a like a particularly feminist, pretty queer vein <laughs> that's been happening for a very long time. And I'm just like shuffling in line. But it's been wonderful to sort of touch hands, like physically touch hands with a lot of people that I was reading. So Philippa Yardavillius and uh, Makosa Zanakaba being elders who are really proximal, but like super proximal to me. Or Otsunia Juliana Kodbitek, who is one of my teachers and also one of someone super, super close to me in terms of as a, as this like lighthouse to me, I suppose, who also just nudged me deeper and deeper into a sort of 
intellectual, but also like heart-focused intellectual pursuit at engaging with African art and African film and African literature. But then I think the naughty space that I find myself most excited to find myself in right now is this like burgeoning trans and queer African spirit, this like this gorgeous like heralding of voices, I think, that we're starting to see with with luminaries like Akweke Amezi and I think more locally with poets like Kopana Marocha and artists, performance artists and musicians like Desire and Nakane and Koleko Putsuma that we're seeing as this like really cool queer thing that's happening that has always been happening that is like beautifully connected to artists and writers like uh, Gabola Siladeka and activists and creators like Dr. Beverly Ditsi and, and Simon and Goody. So there's cool stuff happening here. And I think that I'm trying to kind of shuffle in and be part of the cool kids for a little bit. <laughs> What do you love about being African? I love, oh, I love us. I love how um, incredibly imaginative, endlessly, infinitely imaginative, and how the imaginations and the stories and the folk tales and the cultures of morality that I'm now finally turning to face are just replete with voices, just bursting with voices. And so many colors of the human condition and also beyond the human condition. So much further beyond <laughs> what it means to be human. I think um, being African forces me to think about things in cosmic time or try to think about things in this deeply non-linear frame and way of being and way of existing that dissolves the boundary between my work and my life. It just... Yeah, I feel like I'm facing myself by facing my work. I'm facing my home by facing my work, by facing myself. So I like the tension <laughs> and the pain and the pleasure and the beauty and the joy hiding in that process of doing that and being so lucky to be able to do this work. It feels very cool. When do you feel most African? That's so hard. <laughs> um, but when I'm praying, um, when I'm talking to myself and when I'm talking, when I'm deeply inside of community. So when I'm with my people and we talk the way we talk and we are the way we are and we feel safe to do it and I feel safe to do it. I feel most alive. When I feel most alive, I feel the most African, I suppose. This is very interesting. You define yourself as Black, trans, non-binary, queer. What does it mean? What is it? What are these things? Only because I want to lean into a kind of like trickster energy. It's like they don't mean anything, but they also mean everything. Everything. It's who I carry with me, who I've been, who I am to be. I also rest on, I think it's a terrible paraphrasing of what now dearly departed Bachuk's 
had said about queerness, that it's not necessarily about who you sleep with and it's not necessarily just defined from a sexual politic, but it's about a self that is at odds, at deep, deep odds with the society and the space in which it finds itself and the discourses that seek to define it, that it must always be and has always been, already is at odds, a self that is at odds, which I think differs, at least in my brain and, and, and how I feel it, differs from being purely oppositional because that there's a warning in there because the more that we define ourselves as anti and non by non in negative terms and a negative space, the more something else is defined and rarefied. So it's like, I'm not trying to do that, but what I'm trying to, I suppose, carve out an other space, not a third space, another space that has already been there and it takes remembering and defending and defining and creating and dismantling. So I think, yeah, it's like, I, oof, I don't know, but I know that it's not what I was assigned as <laughs> to use tricky parlance. It's not that, it has nothing to do with my assignment. Thank you so much, Maneo, for taking us through this amazing journey. Thank you, Stéphanie Hirschbrunner, who introduced me to Maneo. And thanks a lot for the African Book Festival in Berlin for making this episode possible. Sound design of this episode, Sonar. This is We Are All African. See you next week en français.